the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. David Kendall, Chief Scientific Medical Officer of the American Diabetes Association, and he's going to discuss the American Diabetes Association Complete Guide to Diabetes. He's my first guest. Second guest is uh, Karen McCall, founder of the Financial Recovery Institute, and she's here to talk about developing a healthy relationship with money. So I guess we're talking about healthy relationships, whether it comes to our physical infirmities or, or our money. So, uh, But first, my first guest is here, Dr. David M. Kendall, Chief Scientific Medical Officer of the American Diabetes Association, which is an enormous problem here in the United States. Apparently, 26 million people in the United States suffer from diabetes. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, doctor. Good. Thank you very much, Catherine. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's uh, 26 million people is a lot of people, and uh, I, I guess my first question is, why so many people and why now? It seems to me that diabetes has been obvious. It, it is an epidemic. It is on the uprise. According to the CDC uh, statistics, I guess, you know, confirms exactly what you're talking about. And so why? Why all of this? Why now? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right that uh, this is an epidemic. Uh, it's uh, been a problem, and obviously diabetes has been uh, present for many years, but with uh, 26 million Americans now affected, nearly one in 10 uh, individuals now affected by diabetes, um, many, including the CDC, are looking at that specific question, why? And we don't have a single answer, obviously, but the most common form of diabetes so-called type 2 diabetes, is very likely a combination of having the right genetic background, who you are, um, and more and more people are presumably at risk for diabetes if they have a family member with diabetes, if they're in a higher risk population group like African American, Native American, Hispanic Americans. Um, And when you combine that at-risk population with an environment that is calorie rich, which makes physical activity much more challenging, um, then you have uh, superseding uh, increases in body weight, overweight, and obesity, which we know contribute to or at least trigger the risk for diabetes. So it's a balance between who you are and how we live. Um, the choices that we make, it would seem to me. I mean, the CDC, as I was looking up some of these statistics, 33% of Americans are obese and another 34% are overweight. Um, and it's, I guess, and that also is increasing year by year. 300,000, I have to give this statistic that sort of blew me away, 300,000 people a year uh, deaths are attributed to obesity. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me this is all related, but, you know, you mentioned type 2 diabetes, doctor, and could you make a distinction between type 1 and type 2. So, you know, type 1 is what we inherit or we're born with, and mm-hmm. type 2 is what we acquire. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's yes, uh, the two forms, type 1 and type 2, and these are all outlined in the American Diabetes Association's complete guide, uh, what we call the ultimate home reference. Um, type 1 diabetes is a specific disease where the body, uh, through an immune attack, destroys its own insulin-producing cells, traditionally or typically seen in children and younger adults, but can actually occur at any age. Um, The estimates are that probably 5% of diabetes is just that type 1 diabetes where insulin is absolutely necessary. Type 2 diabetes, the most common form, is a combination of the body not responding to insulin and then living in and creating an environment where more insulin is needed. You, You referred to obesity, which makes the body resistant to insulin's effect. So it's this combination of uh, being resistant to the effects of insulin in the body and not making as much insulin as the body needs. So that um, is what we typically associate with uh, overweight and obesity. The, the good news is, I mean, obviously both are very manageable. That's also part of the complete guide. And type 2 diabetes in part is preventable by making lifestyle changes, losing modest amounts of weight, increasing physical activity. You know, and I, that's what I wanted to get to next because as I was reading the book, I'm thinking, and they're you know very obviously very sound advice in in the uh, complete guide to diabetes, the American Diabetes Association's guide. But they tell you you know that very specifically to eat well, to exercise, you know, lower your stress levels, all of those good kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it? It seems to me that people who are who get type two diabetes. Uh, and because they don't live a healthy lifestyle, because they are overweight, because they don't exercise, so are they going to be able to handle their diabetes if they couldn't make the right choices in the first place? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I uh, as part of the diabetes community for many years, it's easy to kind of point fingers and lay blame, but uh, even overweight and obesity we know have very strong uh, genetic underpinnings and much of it is, you know, the body's defense. No one wakes up on their 10th birthday and commits themselves to overeating. But in fact, the drive to consume calories if they're available to keep the body in so, so-called energy balance, even if you're overweight, um, as you and many of your listeners know, losing weight is a very challenging thing to do. The body protects our, itself against this. Um, so making those changes, um, even though, as you say, they may have contributed excess calories, decreased activity to the development of diabetes, uh, we know it's never too late for even modest changes to make a difference, both in preventing uh, type 2 diabetes from occurring and in treating it effectively once it occurs. So what are the symptoms? What are the symptoms for diabetes? Uh, let's yeah, talk very, about very, those. Yeah. Very typically, and good, uh, good question, uh, is the most common set of symptoms early in the course of type 2 diabetes is no symptom at all. Blood sugar will become elevated, but most people don't feel anything. So uh, that's why understanding your risk, if you're at higher risk at a first-degree relative with diabetes, that regular screening after the age of 40 or 45 is appropriate. When blood sugars become significantly elevated, then the common symptoms of excess thirst excess urination, perhaps visual blurring, um, and unexplained weight loss, um, particularly if it's combined with those other symptoms, um, can be typical of uh, uncontrolled blood sugars and the presence of undiagnosed diabetes. So what is the term pre-diabetic? What does that mean? I've Mm -hmm. heard that kind of thrown around or people saying, I've even had a friend of mine say to me yesterday, she said, you know, when I told her you were going to be on the show, she said, well, you know, I've been told I'm pre-diabetic. What's that? Yeah, so those are uh, really, it's a catch-all term for individuals that we know are at higher risk for ultimately moving on to 
develop type 2 diabetes. They have blood sugars that are higher than what we would consider normal, um, but not high enough that we know they are diagnostic of diabetes and the risk of diabetes-related complications. Um, again, having prediabetes is specifically defined by either uh, a higher-than-average blood sugar level um, or a higher-than-average so-called A1C test, which is an integrated measure of how much sugar is in your blood. Um, but neither is high enough to be diagnostic of diabetes. And those are the exact people who can benefit the most from these relatively straightforward preventive uh, efforts so that they don't go on to develop full-blown diabetes. What about the difference between well, adults and children? Are we? I mean, I'm assuming that more children are developing type 2 diabetes as well as adults at a younger and younger age. Absolutely. And so, as I said earlier, type 1 diabetes was traditionally associated with childhood and young adults, uh, type 2 diabetes uh, with obesity and older adults. Um, but to your point, we're seeing more and more children and young adults who develop obesity early in life and who come from families who are at higher risk for diabetes and actually do develop type 2 diabetes. So the epidemic of type 2 diabetes goes across the lifespan but is uh, increasing in particular in younger adults and even in children. And we're seeing children uh, even as young as four, five, six years old who develop type 2 diabetes. And what is the risk involved in that? Because, you know, over a period of time, I mean, this is a chronic, I'm descri- I guess we would call it a chronic illness and mm-hmm. in the guide, um, the diabetes guide tells you how to manage your chronic illness. So if you're starting at age six or seven with type 2 diabetes over the years, how is that going to affect your body, your brain, your overall health? Mm-hmm. Well, again, and you referred back to the complete guide to diabetes, uh, what uh, higher blood sugars do over time is they can result in damage to key organs, in particular the eyes, nerve, kidneys, and bigger blood vessels so that heart disease uh, kidney failure, uh, problems with circulation to the limbs, uh, uh, and uh, blindness are potential risks. Now, those are what we would call end-stage complications. The longer you're exposed to high blood sugar, the more common those complications become. But the sooner people manage their diabetes effectively by keeping blood sugars uh, at lower levels, the far less likely they are to develop those complications over the course of a lifetime. As a social worker, I'm curious, um, doctor. Um, you know, some, I, I, I was having, I was getting blood work done at a doctor's office a few weeks ago, like a yearly routine blood work, and there was somebody sitting there who obviously had type two diabetes, a young woman in her early thirties, and you know, she was kind of, she was talking about her numbers, and I don't, you know, I didn't really know where to put the numbers. Maybe I will after I finish the complete guide, but. Um, you know, and she she was all wrapped up in it, and she seemed kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say happy, but she was like, you know, this was kind of like a, almost like a positive thing. And I wonder, do people realize, you know, because we have the ability to manage okay, type 2 diabetes and also other kinds of illnesses that we did, couldn't do that before, people, that individuals get used to it and they don't realize the seriousnesses or they don't want to accept the seriousness that you really do have to do something about it in terms of prevention or in terms of, as you say, you know, um, I mean, there are things that you can do so that you um, will, even if you're developing it, so that you can curb it so that you won't get it or you won't continue with the disease. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're spot on, uh, Catherine, that uh, really understanding the seriousness of diabetes is critical. Again, the complete guide refers to what can be done to manage it, but also is very frank about what can uh, occur if diabetes isn't well managed. 
much like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Um, uh, diabetes is one of the chronic non-communicable diseases, as we say, um, is imminently manageable, but people have to understand the potential seriousness. Uh, the American Diabetes Association has, over the last uh, couple of years, put forth the so-called Stop Diabetes Movement, um, and more information is obviously available on that at our website. Um, and, and what that is really designed to do is to understand risk, to understand that diabetes has potential serious and, in some cases, deadly consequences, but that it is imminently manageable. Um, you're right uh, as well that having an understanding of that from a behavioral and social perspective really helps people focus on their health. Some people with diabetes actually are better aware of their health and health status than people without diabetes. They're managing high blood pressure, managing their high glucose, managing their cholesterol and complications risk. So, you know, while no one would choose a chronic disease, it can have uh, certainly manageable uh, consequences and people can live long, very healthy and productive lives with diabetes. Uh, we're talking to Dr. David Kendall, uh, MD, Chief Scientific and Medical Officer of the American Diabetes Association and, and discussing some of the advances in diabetes care uh, and offering insights from the association's complete guide to diabetes. We're going to be back in a minute. And, Dr. Kendall, when we come back, I want to talk about diabetes in pregnant women and the different way that diabetes affects uh, men and women and, well, we discussed children, but, but we haven't really discussed the differences in terms of how the, uh, the disease affects these different groups. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Joining me this morning, and I'm pleased to have him here, is Dr. David Kendall, Chief Scientific and Medical Officer of the American Diabetes Association. Uh, and he's here to talk about the latest guide, American Diabetes Association Complete Guide to Diabetes. And we've been sort of going... We've talked about a lot of different kinds of things, but I do want to 
to um, address the fact, Dr. Kendall, about diabetes and how it affects men, women, and children differently because apparently it does. There's a difference between, of course, when women get pregnant, it's going to affect them if, if they have diabetes. So let's kind of tackle that one. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, two very important considerations for women uh, of childbearing age uh, and specific to pregnancy. Uh, one is something called gestational diabetes, which affects somewhere between 5 and 10% of pregnancies. And what happens with gestational diabetes is uh, women without pre-existing diabetes, um, during particularly the later stages of pregnancy, the third trimester, the body requires more and more insulin um, due to changes in the placenta and the growing fetus. Um, and some women just cannot make enough insulin during that last part of pregnancy and they develop a, a short-term condition with higher blood sugars that can have consequences, particularly for the fetus. They tend to grow larger, be heavier at birth. That means more cesarean sections. Um, that is generally screened for somewhere between 20 and 28 weeks of pregnancy. Um, it probably is more common than we've even previously appreciated um, and can be managed in many cases just by changing diet, in some cases requiring medication like insulin. Uh, In most cases, the vast majority, that type of diabetes goes away right after birth. Um, But those women are also at future risk for developing type 2 diabetes. The other consideration, Catherine, is women with known diabetes who are either planning pregnancy or become pregnant, the same potential consequences of high blood sugar impacting the fetus, both in terms of its growth I mean, very high blood sugars, you either see smaller for gestational age children um, or much larger for gestational age, so big and little babies. Um, And for very poorly controlled diabetes early in pregnancy, there is an increased risk for some birth defects. So controlling diabetes very well as women are planning a pregnancy and during that pregnancy is critical if they have pre-existing diabetes. What about men? How how does it affect Yeah, so uh, men and women uh, obviously differ for a variety of reasons. Men's health and diabetes have a number of important connections. Obviously, the complications of diabetes can affect you regardless of your gender, but uh, uh, in men in particular, um, uh, sexual dysfunction uh, tends to be more common. Men are known to be at a higher risk for heart disease. Diabetes adds to that risk in uh, men. Um, And certainly uh, the issues of sexual dysfunction, sexual health, need to be addressed um, because uh, it's obviously not part and parcel of diabetes in men to have difficulty with uh, either arousal or sexual function. But because those problems are more common, particularly with long-standing diabetes, um, men with diabetes should, you know, first of all, ask their physician about any changes in sexual health. Um, and, and providers, the healthcare team, should make certain to uh, inquire of men if there are any problems related to sexual health. So, in other words, men, well, maybe if they've had diabetes on for a number of years on a long-term basis, that they're mm-hmm. more prone to being impotent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's not uh, simple, uh, as we say, erectile dysfunction or impotence, but sometimes a lack of arousal, concern that uh, uh, sexual activity may put an added strain on their body for heart health and things like that. Um, so a, a variety of things, and many of them are as much uh, social and behavioral uh, components and need to be addressed as a good part of diabetes care. Uh, maybe we've already covered the children because, as, as you said before, if you're when you're if you get if you're diagnosed with type two diabetes at age three or, or well, we said seven or eight, and then you have it on a lifetime basis, it's going to affect all your organs over over the over a long period of time. Yeah. So it's and and like you suggest, the the longer you 
can and uh, will live with diabetes, the, the more important it is to manage it well for as long as possible and to start doing so as early as possible. There are a number of other things in children. Obviously, you're talking about uh, behavioral development, uh, cognitive development, uh, puberty. Um, all of those things, you know, have their own challenges. So trying your best to uh, work with the healthcare team to manage type 1 or type 2 diabetes in children, young adults, adolescents, uh, is increasingly important. And because we're seeing more diabetes, we're seeing more diabetes in children. So understanding how that's ma- uh, managed, uh, I think, is improving. And again, there's uh, uh, features in the complete guide speaking specifically about care in children. Doctor, if we are seeing more an increase in diabetes, men, women, and children, and we kind of talked about that in the beginning, I know I keep going back to that, but it seems to me we're just making poor choice. I get this this, this sort of, um, I think that perhaps that we are just, as Americans, making poor choices about our health from the very beginning, that we can prevent it. Not, I mean, this tells us how to manage it, mm-hmm. you know, the guide, but this also whole issue, isn't there, of prevention if we make better choices, eating habits, exercises, uh, exercise, those that we, that we won't get to this point where we develop type 2 diabetes? Yeah, like, uh, you're, you're spot on, Catherine. As with most epidemics, um, you know, waiting to treat it once it occurs is uh, becoming an increasing challenge, and the amount of healthcare dollars and healthcare resources spent simply to manage diabetes will ultimately be uh, uh, overwhelming. And this is not just in the U.S., but in fact, uh, globally now, we're seeing rates of diabetes rise uh, faster in Asia, Africa, um, South Asia, and South America than they actually are in Europe and the United States. Um, It is imminently preventable, and you talked about choices. Um, uh, Individuals obviously make choices, food choices, activity choices, but uh, the environment also uh, provides us those choices. So uh, as I quickly referred to during the break when we were discussing, um, if fruits and vegetables are not readily available but but high-calorie density foods are, an individual may have no choice but those high-calorie density foods, and that can contribute to the risk of obesity and diabetes. So um, I think wholesale changes in our environment, making physical activity more uh, readily accessible, walking paths, uh, time for activity, will all be critically important. Uh, And as you say, this is really as much about prevention as treatment. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things, and yes, for certain populations, vulnerable populations, as you say, maybe fruits and vegetables aren't available or they can't afford them. Mm-hmm. Yep. But we are a middle-class society, and I'm assuming these statistics, let's say, from the CDC, that 34% of us are obese and the other 34% are, are overweight, mm-hmm. applies to the middle class who do have fruits and vegetables available. I guess I'm trying to get, what are we doing wrong? Why aren't we making good choices? Maybe we can't answer that now, but it's not just those vulnerable populations who, uh, who don't have access to, to, to good food, and, and that, that, that's a whole other area. But, kind of, but, we, but as a, what, 85% of us are middle class or, 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 or on the other end of the uh, socioeconomic um, demographics, um, we're not making good choices. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, for better or for worse, available. Yeah, di- diabetes knows no social bounds. It's yeah. actually as or more common in uh, lower socioeconomic uh, uh, status groups, um, but it really knows no bounds. Uh, overweight and obesity uh, crosses those. Um, as you say, even when the choices are available, so-called indulgence foods are commonly and still readily available. And, you know, interestingly, the brain and body are programmed to you know, get satisfaction from some of those uh, high-calorie density or indulgence foods. So 
it really is about changing what's in your refrigerator, what's in your supermarket, um, to allow you to make the right choices at the right time. Um, no different than taking the stairs rather than the escalator or elevator. Yep. <laughs> I always take, I always walk. <laughs> a fabulous yes. choice. That's, and that's sure. a very good, yeah, it's a good example. All right, and probably last thing, but I mean, the impact of, of, uh, of, the cost. I mean, that's important. The impact of the healthcare laws on people with diabetes. That's one thing we haven't talked about. Maybe we should uh, kind of wind up with that one because uh, that's a huge issue. Yeah, and again, we don't get into this in the complete guide to diabetes. That's really more about uh, management and prevention and understanding all aspects of diabetes. But uh, uh, currently, it's estimated in the U.S. that we spend over two hundred billion dollars a year in both direct and indirect medical costs. Um, I mean, that's an enormous, enormous uh, yeah. burden on uh, the public health system. And if uh, CDC predictions are correct, that number could grow to more than half a trillion, maybe close to two-thirds of a trillion dollars in the next 20 or 30 years. Um, So, you know, it's big business, it's good business, but it's an unsustainable business. So, prevention and reducing the risk and the burden of diabetes is critical. Um, the the health uh, reform and affordable uh, care act, um, obviously great complexities and political uh, machinations that go on around <laughs> it. Um, you know, there are some very important uh, pieces in that legislation. One, um, the issue around pre-existing conditions. If you develop diabetes, um, it has been very challenging for many people with diabetes to get health insurance because it's a chronic disease that has added expense. So we think at the American Diabetes Association that uh, eliminating the restrictions on pre-existing conditions really does uh, afford people with diabetes access to better care. Now, how that care is delivered, how preventive services are ultimately delivered is still under debate, but the emphasis on prevention in the Affordable Care Act is also an important part that I think speaks well to the future of preventing <clears throat> diabetes or at least limiting the lifetime burden of diabetes. Yeah, and, we're, and when we're talking about the, the cost, we're not simply talking about the physical cost, the emotional cost, mm-hmm. the emotional turmoil. I mean, as you're describing all of what goes into managing the disease with, with, uh, with families, with children. Uh, the emotional costs have to be uh, unwieldy, I mean, because uh, it, it puts an enormous burden on families um, and relationships, couples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, as, as we've talked about the behavioral and social aspects of diabetes, uh, lost days from work, productivity, or presenteeism, as it's called, are all affected by uh, diabetes. Um, so understanding those emotional and behavioral components of any chronic disease, particularly diabetes, uh, is important for individuals living with diabetes. It's why the Complete Guide has at least sections on those behavioral components. Um, you know, this hangs over many people's heads. It affects their families' activities and behaviors. It need not be wholly disruptive, but really understanding diabetes is what's critical to live well with diabetes. Well, this has been a very interesting uh, interesting show and lots of information. As you said, Dr. Kendall, there's a lot of information in the book, too. You kind of just have to use it sort of like a dictionary for diabetes, mm-hmm. I would say. The American Diabetes Association Complete Guide to Diabetes. You can get this online bookstores everywhere, I assume. And is there a website that we can go to as well? Yeah, so uh, people can shop uh, diabetes at diabetes.org uh, as well. Our online uh, sales are available in the ebook uh, will uh, or is soon available uh, as well as the hard copy as a reference. So we encourage people to look for uh, uh, either the hard copy or the ebook um, and uh, hope this serves as a continued useful resource. So diabetes.org and the American Diabetes Association website also a great source for information. 
Dr. David M. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pleasure to join you, Catherine. Thanks, Great much. to have you. I'm Catherine Fox, your social worker with a microphone. We're going to take a short break right now. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show this morning on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me, my next guest is Karen McCall, founder of the Financial Recovery Institute, and she's author of Financial Recovery, Developing a Healthy Relationship with Money. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, her book and developing a healthy relationship with money, improving personal money relationships. I don't think there's one person in this country who doesn't need to listen to this, whether you have a lot of money, you don't have any money, or you're kind of right in the middle. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Karen. Thank you, Catherine. It's nice to be here. Well, this is, you know, money. I mean, a a relationship with money, and I guess we all develop a a relation, we do develop a relationship with money, as you say in the book, and it begins at a very early age, and we have varying degrees in terms of our relationship with money, healthy, not so healthy. Sometimes it works for us and sometimes it doesn't, but what is the premise of your book? Well, the premise is that the healthier your relationship with money, the less likely it is that money will distract you from the things that you really value the most. And, you know, we, when we think about relationships, it's, it's kind of like running a car. You know, we, we know that we want to get from, from here to there, but we don't necessarily, we know we have to put gas in it once in a while, but we don't necessarily want to know what's going on under the hood. And that's the way a lot of people approach money. You know, they want to have it, and they hope that they're making good decisions, but they really don't have their arms around it so that they not only understand where they are, but where they're heading. Right. And this has obviously a personal meaning for you because you started out 
And maybe we should start with that because, you know, you yourself had a very difficult relationship with money. It wasn't working for you, your story. Tell us your story first, and, and then we'll go from there. Well, Catherine, if you would have seen me 27 years ago, you would have thought I was the most successful person in the world by the way I looked and the facade that I presented to the world. I had a fantastic office in a big, round, glass building in San Francisco's financial district. I had a corner office with a view of the San Francisco Bay. I drove a sports car. And I also had a big secret, and that is that at home on top of my refrigerator was a big bowl of unopened bills, you know, so out of sight, out of mind. And I just went into a money coma. I just completely ignored the reality of what was happening to me. And it was it was pretty devastating. My kids were away at college. I was on my own for the first time. I had a, a substantial amount of money a couple of years before, but just that two years of being completely unconscious and kind of medicating myself, getting numb with shopping, it really led to a lot of devastation. So you're saying that two years before, before you, when I guess your kids were home before what... Um, it was a two-year period where you had a good job, you were doing well, but then you somehow went into what you describe as a money coma. You just kind of ignored the monies that you were making weren't able to accommodate your lifestyle, and so you just ignored it. And well, yes. I went through a divorce, and so there, and my kids were away at college, you know, that full time, but going through the divorce, I was alone for the first time in my life, and I had never learned about money. And I was too embarrassed and too ashamed to ask anyone. And so, again, just stuck my head in the sand and kind of watched my assets go down and my debt go up. You know, in the 80s, it was so easy to get credit at that point. And, again, just completely unaware. Just, you know, as I said, living in a money coma, unconscious. And people will have varying degrees of that. They may be in a mild fog, but, but it's some form of denial that a lot of us live in, and as I said, it can have from mild to devastating effects. Don't you think, Karen, that we live in a society that really promotes this as well? I mean, you're talking about the 80s. I mean, that's why, you know, I think why, just as a culture, as Americans, why we're in the situation we are now, people buying houses they can't afford, people buying, as you described, expensive clothes, taking trips, just living way beyond our means and, and, not, and, and putting our head in the sand and that money coma. I like that term because I think that, uh, unfortunately, that's not was not obviously not unique to you. And it's, it's, you know, we suffer from that as individuals, but as a society we do too. That's why your book is so relevant. And why don't Americans, one of the things, that this is statistics, that Americans will tell you, we'll talk about most anything and we'll talk about sex, We'll talk about um, our health. We'll talk about our, you know, but we won't talk, we don't discuss money. We will never tell, you know, telling somebody how much we make is a taboo subject. You're absolutely right. It is the last taboo. And you're also right, Catherine, about the fact that this is something that is very difficult for people to do. When, when you consider that the world is becoming more and more plastic, we are encouraged in fact, there are people who don't even use cash. They use plastic. And what it reminds me, and by the way, it's here to stay. It's not going away. But it reminds me of what casinos have known for years, for decades, is that if they can change people's money into chips, then what they do is people disconnect from the reality that they're actually spending money. And so people do the same thing with credit cards, debit cards, 
you know, anything that's plastic, we don't, we don't have that mindfulness that we're actually spending money. We don't have the emotional connection to it. There's, it be, there is yeah. a lack of emotional connection. And then if you add that to the fact that a lot of times we don't even understand that there is an emotional component to the choices that we're making, you know, that we can be completely unconscious about the choices that we're making, that there is an emotional factor. You add that and, and you have a lot of vagueness and a lot of denial going on. And, and that's what happened, I think, when people were buying all these houses that they couldn't afford. People also just stayed in vagueness about what those loans were that they were that they were signing on the dotted line for. And now, of course, we're seeing all of those homes go into foreclosure. And a lot of people have been forced into involuntary simplicity because it's all caught up with them now. So now you step in. Now what do we do? Okay, we have distanced ourselves. We have emotionally distanced ourselves from money. And we so we... You know, many of, I would say most, I don't like to make these huge generalizations, but it is a major problem in this country, obviously. And so in doing so, we are not responsible. We are really being irresponsible with, with our finances. So then what do we do? How do we tackle it? How do we change our relationship with money? Well, one of the first things we need to do is we need to become very conscious of and connected to our money and make that commitment that we're going to do that. And so, as I said earlier, you know, plastic is here to stay. One of the things, you know, the old-fashioned way of, of keeping track of what we have in our accounts, knowing what we're spending, I also think it's very important. Most people do rearview mirror accounting if they do any at all, which means I may, you know, download things from my online banking, you know, every month or so, and I look at it after the fact rather than the forward planning and saying, okay, what's important to me this month? What are my financial responsibilities? But also, what are my needs? What do I value? What's important? And so there's also a disconnect for people between what is a want and what is a need. So as we're planning, if we can understand the difference between wants and needs and make sure that we're meeting our needs first. Have have you ever heard the saying, you can never get enough of what you don't need? And if people are just focusing on the wants and never satisfying what's really important to them, there will constantly be that longing and that hunger for more. And Give that's us an example, a case history. I'm a social worker, so I like to have case histories. It could be your own. Uh, it could be you, but or could just give give us an example of the difference between the wants and and the needs. All right. I worked for 20 years with people, and by the way, even before we had the economy, people had had problems. We've had, you know, people with a lot of problems with money. And so if if I'm working with a client and we get to different categories on their spending plan, and let's say that someone, we get to dating under entertainment, someone who's single, and they say, well, you know, I can't date because I don't have the clothes. And so then we start talking about, okay, so let's put some money in the spending plan to get clothes. And so their their need is their social need, you know, to get out and be, you know, dating or going out with friends. But because they haven't addressed that emotional need, they'll create a situation where I don't have clothes and then they don't have to address what the real need is. Another thing, if we think about someone's car, and let's say it's kind of a beater, not only on the outside but also, you know, the brakes aren't great, the tires are a little bit thin, and someone wants to go and get a detail because they're going to be picking up friends and they're embarrassed and ashamed about their car. Well, 
having it detailed is a want. They could hopefully do that themselves. However, if they don't deal with the safety and security part of their car and get the brakes fixed, and so that's where the confusion can be. You know, what looks good to everyone else and what feels good to me rather than what is going to add to my safety and my security and my sense of self-esteem. So that's how I think of the difference in, in those two examples. Those are good examples. Uh, and I'm, I'm, listening, I'm thinking about my own personal examples as you're telling the story. So that's, that's okay. So we have to address our wants and needs. That's one way of getting out of this money coma. Yes. Um, one of the things you talk about is, is denial because I think that that's stop the denial about where your money is going and stop being afraid of money. I think that's where I sometimes um, fit into the picture. Um, I just I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to look at my financial stuff. I, as you say, I just wait until, you know, uh, until I've already spent it, and then, I, the, okay, I'll take a look at it. But, you know, people often, I mean, I think the whole issue of denial is critical in terms of not dealing with your financials. Well, and, and Catherine, when we put it off, you know, as you're describing, then it becomes a project and it feels like a homework, um, like a term paper. So my recommendation is that people make the commitment to doing it every day. I, to this day, still write down everything that goes out and everything that comes in. And I carry with me, you know, a little bank register and I track my cash. And everyone says, oh, I don't spend that much cash. And some people don't. However, even if they're using those debit cards, if they have a register and they're, they're writing it down either at the end of the day or as they go along. And I've had a, I have a, a very wealthy client who carries her little cash tracker around, and she said, it, she said it gives her immediate feedback. And she loves it. And she said, you know, in the neighborhood she lives in, people are surprised. You know, what, are you writing a check? No, I'm paying cash, but I'm writing it down. So that, that immediate, well, that commitment to immediately record what we're doing keeps us mindful. And then it's not a big project of homework at the end of the day. I did a teleclass last night, and the woman said, I don't have time for tracking. And I said, well, think about how many transactions you've had in a day, you know, maybe three, four, five. It doesn't take very long to write that down, but if we wait until the end of the week, you know, now we have over 30 or 40. So that's the, the, that's a way to set it up for success is to make that commitment that every day you're going to write down what, what you spend. Yeah, so that sort of that takes care of the denial and it becomes just part of your routine. It yeah, we're mindful then. We're mindful, mindful, mindful. Yes. Mind, that's the key. We're going to take a short break, but keep that in mind because okay. that's what it is exactly. It's mindful managing of your money. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and I'm talking to Karen McCall, who is the founder of the Financial Recovery Institute and author of Financial Recovery, Developing a Healthy Relationship with Money. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network. 
each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Fox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning has been Karen McCall, founder of the Financial Recovery Institute and author of Financial Recovery, Developing a Healthy Relationship with Money. And uh, Karen has lots of ways to develop a healthy relationship with money, but there are two things that we want to talk about here. Money has to do a lot, Karen, as I understand it when I read your book, with unmet needs. What do you mean by that? So many people, as we talk about being disconnected from aspects of our life, our spending, and our earning, we're also disconnected from what's really important to us. And so I think about a need as something that really sustains us, and a want is something that, you know, more it, it can drain us over time if we're never meeting what our real needs are. And so my my approach with clients has always been. Let's become aware of your unmet needs, those areas where you're putting up with stuff, kind of tolerating that sense of deprivation, and you would be amazed at people from all walks of life, all economic levels, who can be living in a state of deprivation. And I think of that as kind of the opposite of fulfillment. And so I look for areas of deprivation not only in term, but in our time, energy, and our money. If we're just always spending, spending, spending our time, energy, and money, just kind of running and overdoing it, that can leave us in a state of deprivation. If we are doing without things that are really important, we talked a little bit about a safe car. You know, it can be our health care. It can be social time. So our, our needs are, are many, many, many different levels. And so we want to be tuned into: are we doing without, are we making do? You know, the, the, we just okay. We just don't have the time, or we don't feel we have the money to do things right, so that we again feel that we are worthy and we're we're taking care of ourselves as though we do have self-esteem, and that we believe that we're worthy and we deserve to take good care of ourselves. So, Karen, you are a, a money therapist. I mean, a, fina- a money. You are a financial therapist, really, because a lot of this also comes from, and this has been my experience with as a social worker and counseling people, your relationship with money and feeling deprived or feel, or not or having a lot of unmet needs relates back to your childhood and how all of this was presented to you from your family of origin. Well, that was one of the things that was a tremendous help to me when I got that, and I started writing my money history, and that, that ended up being a, a book called Oh, um, the Money Minder Personal Autobiography, and it's, by the way, it's a free download on my website. It's 95 pages, and what it does is it takes people from their earliest memories of money 
through their adolescent years, their young adulthood, and up to present day, so that people can see how did I develop my belief systems, my attitudes that created this mindset and that may drive a lot of my behaviors with money. And so that's another thing that is so helpful. We want to get connected with the numbers, but we also want to be connected with bring things into the consciousness that we may not even be aware of that's driving uh, our behaviors with money. What are some of those triggers? Uh, I know something about your background, and so maybe how did... Why don't we share a little bit, uh, share that, because that obviously affected your, what happened to you in terms of not dealing, you know, with your relationship with money, which ended up not being a good one after your divorce, or your inability to handle your money after you were divorced, because you had never done that before. So, how does that relate back to your childhood? Well, my childhood was, first of all, I was a really sick kid, so I was in and out of the hospital a lot, and I also had two parents who really were not able to take care of me. And so, you know, believe it or not, some of the time that I felt safest in my childhood was when I was in the hospital. And so it wasn't until I was in uh, fourth grade that I I had my first place of security when I went to live with my aunt and uncle where I knew I had enough food to eat and I knew that they would read stories to me at night and it was the very first time that I had this sense of safety and security. However, as lovely as they are, and they're both still alive today, I dedicated my book to them. They're in their 90s. Just celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. I always felt like an outsider because they had their two children, and our personalities are all very different. They're very quiet and reserved, and I'm very outgoing. And so I, I think that a lot of my emotional needs growing up, feeling that I was okay, feeling that I belonged, it, it just... It left that sense of of need for me, of, of connection and approval and validation. And so what that did is it really set me up for, the, for these addictive behaviors and always looking for validation from the outside. So I had to look good and I had to sound good, and I couldn't let anybody know how empty I felt and how bad I felt about myself. So you had to have the fancy car and the fancy house and all of the external stuff trying to really fill up the what you were lacking internally, emotionally. Yes, and, you know, as I look back and I think how, what, what a sad story it is, really, it, it all led me to where I am today, and I think that and in looking at our relationship with money, it can be a journey of self-discovery. You know, today I know what my needs are. Today I have connection with, uh, with my daughters and my grandchildren and my sons-in-laws, and, you know, I have meaningful relationships today where... I no longer need all of those trappings, even though I like nice things and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's not going to make me feel as though I have to disappear or that I, I can't show up in the world, you know, if I don't have. In fact, my car's quite old now, you know, and, and I That's don't. That's a healthy You have an old car. car. <laughs> it still looks great because you I recovered. take care of it. Yeah, uh, uh, if you're not, well, we go back to. Uh, mindlessly buying all this stuff just to, as we say, to, to, to just to, to fill up an emptiness inside. And I'm glad you brought in your, your children and your grandchildren because obviously then, well, you discovered all of this, I guess, after your kids were in college, you said, because what would you do for your children? I mean, you know, let's say I'm, I'm thinking about ah, listeners. Yeah. Good question. Well, what I did is I, I overcompensated. So my kids had everything. 
they had the beautiful bedroom with a white furniture with the pink flowers on it and the beautiful pink bedspreads and the wallpaper with pink flowers. I hope, were they girls? They were both girls. <laughs> and they are both girls. And so they're both fine with money. It's so interesting that... And even though certainly I made a lot of mistakes, obviously a mom who grows up like that is going to have some challenges, and, and my kids certainly had some challenges. However, I overcompensated, so they never went to school, you know, looking the way I looked when I went to school, and, and they did go to school, and they're very loving parents today. But, you know, and because I had my kids very young, I've had a, a great opportunity since I've been working on this for 27 years to have a relationship with them now that's not about a substitution for me by buying them things. I did the same thing for them that I ended up doing for myself. Now it's a meaningful relationship where we're, we're connected. And I know what their real needs are. I know when they need me to show up and help out and, and when they need a break and when they need a shoulder and when we need to have fun. So we're connected in a very, very different way. And I'm so grateful for my financial recovery, that it turned my life around. It really ended up being a bridge that took me from where I was to where I wanted to be and where I am today. And that's what I'm so grateful for. And that's what I tried to write about in the book, is, is that journey, not only mine, but the clients that I've worked with over the years. And Karen, you broke the cycle of that just that poor, you know, the, the whole cycle of, and I mean, you recovered, but then you recovered so that it affected generations, your, your, your daughters, your grandchildren, your relationship with them, you know, because you can't, because I think families have, a, you know, there are families, well, we've been discussing this, but families have a problem with money and not, so you're helping yourself also help generation and the next generation in terms of financial recovery or establishing a good relationship with their, with money. Oh, yes, Catherine. And, you know, just in, thing, in terms of needs, I have a 16-year-old grandson in the last two days. We have probably had... 40 or 50 texts and several telephone calls because he's doing finals and he's had some last-minute projects. And I have this skill of helping him chunk it down into bite sizes. And, you know, last night when I got the last text from him late at night, Grandma, I'm going to bed for the night, again, I just I laid there for a moment and I was in so much gratitude that I have this connection with this kid and that I can be there and show up for him in a way that's not just taking him out and buying stuff. And that I treasure that. I just absolutely treasured that moment last night when I got his last email. I'm going to bed. I'm tired. Can we pick it up tomorrow? Uh, that is a great, it's a great ending to the show because we, we have 30 seconds left, but that's a great, I mean, that's what it's all about. That's a need. That's yeah. meeting a real important need from, with my grandson and one of mine because I feel very, very wonderful about being able to connect with him in that way. So connecting, what about with, the, with our audience? Quickly, tell us the website we can go to so we can get more information about you, the book, or we can buy it at bookstores everywhere, financial recovery. But there's also a website we want to direct people to. And the, fi- and the website is also financialrecovery.com, and you'll find a lot of good stuff on the website. You can sign up for the blog. I have very content-rich blogs, and I have a free teleclass once a month. There's a free ebook I told you about. There's also a link to buy the book, and the book's also available in libraries and bookstores. Have a great day. I'm Thank Catherine you, Catherine. Zox. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. 
You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.